In the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We have today yet another of Jesus' parables, though presented differently from those we heard the past few Sundays. This one, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, appears only in Luke's Gospel. It is clear from the portion just previous to this that Jesus is addressing the Pharisees who were fond of money. Well, who is it? Could this be addressed to us too, 2,000 years later? Remember that this is a parable, Jesus' favorite teaching device. It's not a factual story the sort seen in a newspaper or Time magazine. Generally, the characters in Jesus' parables are not given names, though tradition tells us that the rich man was called Dives, D-I-V-E-S, or Nineveh. Lazarus is named by Jesus, though. The only occasion that happens in any of his parabolic teachings Similar stories existed in Egypt and among the early Talmudic scholars. Jesus could easily have adapted these stories to his own parables. Remember that Jesus was very much a biblical scholar of the Hebrew Bible. To put it mildly, Jesus was exceptionally bright and very clever. Debating Jesus would have been a tall order. The rich man was clothed in purple, a tip right off at the outset that he was in a pretty high tax bracket, as purple dye was quite expensive and often reserved for royalty. The rich man, of course, ate well, Jesus may have been pulling his audience in, as likely few, if any of them, would have worn the purple clothing of royalty, but little did they know. Nor would they have so totally ignored the needs of Lazarus, the leprous poor soul who would have been happy to eat the scraps which fell from the wealthy man's table. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. At this point, we imagine Jesus' listeners were likely very much on Lazarus' side and not identifying at all with the rich man. Well, if they knew Jesus at all, they may have been selling him short. A national study last spring about the Episcopal Church may have caught some of us unaware in a similar way. The study found that while Christians have favorable views of their own generosity, compassion, and respect, non-Christians see Christians as hypocritical, 
and judgmental. Christians describe themselves as being given, being giving, compassionate, loving, respectful, and friendly. While non-Christians associate Christians with characteristics like hypocrisy, being judgmental, self-righteous, and arrogant. Put another way, we think more of ourselves than others think of us. This hurts. Jesus would likely have agreed that hypocrisy is a much overlooked and misunderstood human virtue in that it obliges all sorts of otherwise wretched people to lead exemplary lives solely through fear of scorn. And one's motivation for good works does make a difference. Make no bones about it. As the great Archbishop St. Thomas Becket said in T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral at Christmas in the year 1170, now is my way clear. Now is the meaning plain. Temptation shall not come in this kind again. The last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right deed for the wrong reason. Well, the poor man Lazarus died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. Shakespeare has Hamlet say, May flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. I always close funeral homilies with that wonderful line, and I shall never forget being asked once, where in Holy Scripture does that come from? <laughs> and I answered, why, from the book of Hamlet. <laughs> and with Abraham, calls to mind Paul Green's classic Southern tragedy in Abraham's bosom about a poor black field worker, Abe McCraney, the son of a white man, Colonel McCraney, in 1885 in the turpentine woods of eastern North Carolina. Abe wanted to start a school for black children, but the Klan ran him out drove him to murder, and then killed him. He landed, though, in Abraham's bosom, while the colonel, who died soon thereafter, landed elsewhere, Hades, where he was tortured. Hades is also sometimes called Buddha, in ancient Greek religion, the god of the underworld. Hades was not a destination of choice. Now my guess is that none of Jesus' listeners took this story literally, knowing it was a parable. But I'm confident that many, if not all, knew folks who fit the story and who may well have been embarrassed by some of their behavior. Nor is the parable relevant only to the time 2,000 years ago in Israel. We can bring it forward to the 21st century and 
find it fits well here and now also. The rich man in the parable certainly owed a debt to Lazarus, just as we all owe a debt to those hurting and in need. Suppose a lower three-level subordinate of Pilate or one of the satraps of the Roman Empire has in his political subdivision or county a number of women and children, poor and hungry refugees from a foreign land. Our junior empire official could reach out all over, put together a refugee task force, gather contributions of food and clothing, and just go all out to take care of his refugee brothers and sisters. That would be one approach. Or the same fellow could take another approach. Instead of feeding, clothing, and housing these refugee women and children, and providing needed medical care, all of which would take time, effort, and money, to say nothing of love. Let's do this. Let's gas up a 737 and just fly these folks to Martha's Vineyard. That'll work. Happily, Massachusetts is a long way from Florida in so many ways. And Charlie Baker, the kindly Republican governor in Boston, and the three Episcopal Church parishes on Martha's Vineyard, St. Andrews, Grace, and Trinity, participated big-time welcomes there for refugee women and children to Cape Cod. It may not be such a long way to Tipperary, but it is certainly a long way to Tallahassee. From his hot seat in Hades, where he was being tormented relentlessly. The wealthy man looked up, and it was up, and saw Father Abraham far away with Lazarus by his son. It's interesting that 2,000 years ago, heaven was up while Hades and hell were down. I've always had my doubts about assigning geographical limits or a mark on the compass roads to heaven. But then Chapel Hill has long been known as the southern part of heaven. <laughs> so the wealthy man cries out in desperation to Father Abraham, asking that he just send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool the man's tongue. For I am in agony in these flames. Abraham noted that in his lifetime, the rich man lived well while Lazarus suffered. But now their, position, their positions are reversed. And besides, it's just too far from heaven to Hades. You can't get there from here or vice versa. The wealthy man then, for the first time in this parable, 
thinks of someone other than himself, his five brothers. Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Father Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. I cannot tell you how many times I have heard young men with lengthy criminal records say to a judge, Please just give me one more chance. When the fellow has already had a dozen extra chances. Well, the wealthy man in the parable and his five brothers have had one chance after another for a lifetime. And at some point, you have to wonder just how serious they really are. Paul understood this in his first letter to his young colleague, Timothy. Likely written about the time Paul crossed the Bosporus into Macedonia, taking the gospel for the first time into Europe. In fact, the letter could have been written to Dives, the wealthy man in the parable. We brought nothing into this world so that we could take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. Those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pains. And as for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. There to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. Interestingly, F. Scott Fitzgerald had much to say about this in correspondence with his friend Ernest Hemingway. Fitzgerald surely must have been familiar with this gospel passage from Luke. Let me tell you about the very rich. They're different from you and me. They possess and enjoy early, and it does something to them. Makes them soft where we are hard, and cynical where we are trustful. In a way that unless you were born rich, it's very difficult understand. They think deep in their hearts that they are better than we are because we had to discover the 
compensations and refuges of life for ourselves, even when they enter deep into our world or sink below us, they still think that they are better than we are. They are different. And we mustn't overlook the wisdom of W.C. Fields either. He said, a rich man is nothing but a poor man with money. <laughs> Years ago, Ann Hodges Coppola asked me to preach a stewardship sermon. I had already prepared my sermon for that subject. I think it was on a Friday afternoon that she called me. About all I can remember is talking about what a loss it was that we couldn't pass the plate at weddings and funerals. There's some pretty good lessons on stewardship in the lectionary today. And I didn't realize when I was preparing this <coughs> that my pledge card would arrive in the mail on Friday. <laughs> Get yours in, please. So, all that said, walk in love. Christ loved us and gave himself for us, <clears throat> offering a sacrifice to God. Amen.